Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Eight months after Article 50 was triggered, giving the UK just two years of EU membership left, we are finally beginning to see movement in Brexit negotiations. But as Britain is given the green light to move forward onto the second phase of talks, we ask, is this actually a step forward? I'm Connor Pope, and as always, I'm joined by Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Director Richard Angel, with today's guest, Eloise Todd, from the Best for Britain campaign. Regular listeners will remember that Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham came on the podcast a few weeks ago to talk about homelessness. That was episode six, if you missed it. And clearly, he's become an avid Progressive Britain fan, as he's on again today. Last week, Andy was hosting a digital summit in Manchester, and Richard Angel was there to have a short chat with him. So based in the Federation, which is the modern home of the Manchester cooperative movement, a tightly packed room of stakeholders from across uh, the city region came together for the second uh, digital summit under Andy Burnham's leadership. He kicked off the day setting out his vision of Manchester being a leading digital city in the UK and top five across Europe. I asked Andy what he was hoping to get out of the day. The, the big theme is that we're crowdsourcing the digital plan for Greater Manchester. And I think that is genuinely innovative when it comes to public policy development in our country. We've got the tech and digital leaders of our city here alongside our public services, young people, and together they're writing Greater Manchester's digital plan. And for me, that is about changing the way we do things, allowing things to be changed from the bottom up, involving people in new ways. And for me, that points a, a way forward for a healthier politics. You identified that some of your fellow mayors, whether it be Merseyside or the West Midlands, the leadership in Sheffield, also want to be digital cities. But you also identified why Manchester got some USPs, whether it's Bridge GM that you're launching today, helping employers to connect with young people online, your creative cluster here in Manchester, your uh, health devolution so you could bring digital to that, the advanced manufacturing you've got here, and this new digital capital uh, catapult project that you're launching. So how is what you're doing in your devolution here going to help propel this digital project? Well, it's, it was Tony Wilson who said that uh, Manchester likes to do things differently. 
So while others share a similar digital ambition as us, we are resolutely going to, uh, to forge our own path. And our own path is, is not just around the, the crowdsourcing of our plan, it's also putting people at the heart of this. Because sometimes we can maybe, I don't know, fetishize the technology and make that the thing that we all get excited about. But of course, in the end, it's what it does for people. That is what makes a city a truly smart city. So we are using uh, the best brains in the, in the city region uh, to take digital and then connect young people to the opportunities that are out there. And Bridge GM is all uh, about that. Uh, but we're also asking them to help us use digital technology to tackle homelessness, to tackle loneliness amongst older people. For me, that, that, that is the, always the Greater Manchester vision. It's Greater Manchester's history, marrying industrial progress with social progress. And you just shared a stage with the former Minister for Public Administration in Estonia about their e-Estonia project. He started that by saying, as a country, we believe the internet is a social right. We feel far behind that here. Do you think that's right as an attitude? And what can we do to catch up on that? It's so clear, isn't it? But also so powerful. Uh, and as part of the work we're doing, we have uh, a piece of work around inclusion. It's not as strong as the Estonian approach, but I think it's got to be seen in that way. This is where life is happening uh, now. And we're looking here, um, as we're thinking about young people and how we improve their opportunities, at reverse mentoring, where we might encourage young people to go and help uh, older friends, neighbours use social media and get online as well. So how do we kind of use young people to mentor older people as, uh, in reverse. So all of these things I think are, are critically uh, important uh, because the truth is, you know, we're living in times where society is becoming more fragmented, more unequal. And if people aren't uh, able to keep up to date with digital skills and knowledge, then they will potentially be left behind. And that seems vital because we're reopening the class divide digitally if people don't have access to these basic services. The last thing is you said that we're not just trying to teach young people the tech skills, whether it be programming, coding and the like, but the literacy online to know what's fake and what's not. How are you making that a reality? Oh, I think that is so important um, because, you know, young people today don't lack the know-how, actually how to use this stuff. But actually what then is being kind of pushed at them? Uh, the fake and the real, or even uh, those who seek to uh, to pray uh, pray upon them. Uh, we've just this week uh, hosted uh, the Children's uh, Global uh, Digital Summit uh, in Manchester. And we brought the tech giants of the world here, together with the BBC, who are hosting it, to, to ask these tough questions about: Are we really giving young people the literacy to make sense of this world? And I don't think we are, if we're honest. And you know. I, I, I just think that has got to be a bigger question. The curriculum is kind of harking back to a past that's gone and we're not really uh, equipping young people, not just to use the technology, but to understand how other people might be abusing it or, or exploiting it to push a particular, uh, particular argument or, or even to, to, to uh, prey on children's safety. So the, these are major questions and what we want here is a, is a curriculum for the 21st century that gives young people that knowledge, but also is answering their call for a curriculum for life not just digital literacy, financial literacy, emotional literacy, to make their way in a very, very challenging world. Thank you, Andy. Good luck. Thank you, Richard. So some really interesting ideas there. But before we discuss them, Richard, I just wanted to ask you, can you explain what the Digital Summit entailed? How big was it? 
What went on there? So this was the second of the kind. The first came about soon after his mayoralty. I believe a group of people came forward to him and said to use the power of the, to convene of his mayoralty to bring together these stakeholders. It's not formally in his powers, but he brought together that first group. It set up a series of working parties off the back of it. And this was the kind of first report backstage in that sense. So like I said, we had Andy, they had this Estonian MP talking about their model but then throughout the day people were looking at everything from the infrastructure to skills etc so these stakeholders are like entrepreneurs or yeah all kinds so particularly tech entrepreneurs people who were working for big tech companies schools educators the councils both the combined authority and the 10 manchester boroughs it really was a kind of 150 strong series of the right people in the room who could make his vision a reality and i think most importantly it was their vision kind of imparted onto him he has the ambition but probably not the know-how but bring together the know-how to make it a reality there was some really interesting stuff in there i thought about the internet being a social right and i was wondering do, do you think lack of access to the internet is something that causes these left behind areas that for example drove the leave vote last year i mean we talk about brexit being should it be a norway model but actually in terms of internet do we need an estonia model what do you think Alison? well it sounds very interesting but i think there's probably two problems there's the old problem which is that people have different educational achievements that not everybody is able to access stuff online because if you have a lower level of literacy potentially numeracy as well then that's going to hold you back and then there's the new problem which is that what really makes an economy especially in a city be able to take advantage of digital progress is the speed at which they can get connections. I mean, this is just true if you look at, like, big businesses that rely on tech. What they really need is an excellent, quick connection. And there's going to be a lot of incentive to invest capital in somewhere like the City of London to improve those speeds. There's not going to be much incentive to improve the speeds and connectivity in, say, like... Uh, Northumberland or somewhere like that and that means that people are going to feel and businesses in those areas are going to feel left out again. If we're going to kind of rebalance our economy then doing that in a way that makes people able to take advantage of digital opportunities is probably pretty crucial. Eloise, what do you make of that? Do you think this kind of digital ideas are, are a good way of, of rebalancing the economy? It can be workable and it can do really great things for the economy but it has to be about making that link between the dots of providing the tech and the infrastructure and getting people to be trained up and have the educational opportunities to do so. Like Alison said, in the development world where I used to work, there's amazing leaps and bounds made with technology to educate refugees, to give them access to their rights and things like that. And there are a lot of lessons to be learned from those kind of environments that we can apply in our own country to see like where people are leapfrogging some of the administrative barriers to get people connected to their rights and education. But yeah, unless people are trained up, then it's going to be a lot of talk and no action. I think we need to push on there, actually. But here is a message from our Progress Deputy Director, Stephanie Lloyd, about the all-important Christmas season. So if you love Christmas as much as I do, uh, and it's fastly approaching, uh, what could be a better gift to give your loved one than a Progress mug? If you leave a review on iTunes, you could be in with a chance of winning a Progress mug that you can pass on to a friend or loved one. Each week on Friday, Richard and Connor give away at least one of our fantastic mugs. So make sure you leave your review now on prog.rs forward slash iTunes. Digital summits weren't the only thing happening last week. In Brussels, there were crunch Brexit summits too. 
Given deadlock over the Irish border and David Davis's appearance in front of the Brexit Select Committee earlier in the week, in which he appeared to be about as prepared as a Christmas Eve present shopper, few of us expect to see any progress made this side of 2018. Then on Friday morning, out of the blue, Theresa May st- struck a deal that allowed the government to move to the second phase of talks. But what does the deal really mean? What are the phases? And is it now more likely than this time last week that Britain will leave the EU as planned in March 2019? To help us work this out a bit, we have Eloise Todd with us today, Chief Executive of Best for Britain, the organisation that campaigns to keep all options on the table in Brexit talks. Eloise, let's start with you. Is what we are seeing in these talks progress? Well, I think if you compare Monday last week to Friday, there's certainly an amount of progress that Theresa May herself would be happy with, i.e. her job's not um, as on the line as it was perhaps on Monday. (laughs) But on the other hand, the problem that we've got is people can look at this agreement and see whatever they want to see out of it. There are no big decisions made, especially on the Irish border, for example. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the negotiating lines of the UK saying there's no way we're staying in the single market and customs union. And on the other hand, you look at this agreement and it says, don't worry, there won't be a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And don't worry, it won't be in the Irish Sea. To which my answer is, where on earth is it then? Where on earth can you put your border if it's in neither of those two places? And so it appears to open the door to soft Brexit. And then you've got Michael Gove on Radio 4 welcoming this as a massive step in the right direction and appearing to say this can all be changed further down the line, which seems to be a bit of a sop to hard Brexiters to say, don't worry, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. It can all get harder a bit later on. So really, they've batted the hard questions to later. And I think that the problem for the British public is we don't actually know what Brexit the government is going for. We didn't know last week and we don't know this week. And unfortunately, the politics of appearances, the dramatic move to look like there's something going on at 6am after a dramatic all-nighter on Friday has got the news. But it is starting to unravel and people are starting to look at the detail and think, hang on a minute, this doesn't look like it can really work. And there seems to be permanent expectations management going on. And she said, Eloise, whether it's the relationships with our counterparts in Ireland, where it was kind of like deal is on, deal is off. And then, you know, even after the sufficient progress was decided, in other words, that we move on to the trade talk discussions, it's still unclear that we've got an agreement between the UK government, the DUP and the Irish government, that everybody's on exactly the same page. And the only way that they can all be on the same page is because the decision hasn't really been made. And, you know, I would argue that this really demonstrates to people what the crunch of the matter is, which is, do you want to have the same rules and regulations that govern your trade as a European Union, in which case it's a perfectly reasonable deal available to you? Or do you want to dash off, do something different, rip up all the rules that have enabled our trade with the European Union and do something different? Now, for example, maybe move our regulations so that they would fit in more with the trade deal with the US, for example, or the Chinese, to give another example. But if we do that, that means changing the way our economy gets run, which I would worry about a lot. I would think that was very bad for people. So at some point soon, the cabinet has to tell us what they're really planning. Is it broadly the same regulations as the European Union, in which case we may well get a deal or something totally different and pretty radical for the British public, in which case I really think we ought to know.
Richard, do you think that we are looking more likely to become a, a rule taker than a rule maker now? Well, one of the problems in the campaign when the referendum was being fought is that the kind of the point that wasn't able to be made, and I can't think about how you could make this in a campaign forum, is that considering most trade is based on proximity, we're not physically moving away from Europe geographically. Therefore, it's going to be a big it's going to loom large in any of our trade situations. So when you've got that trading block next to you, you either are a rule maker by being in the club or a rule taker by your proximity to the club. So there's not really this option of taking control, choosing our own rules, going on our own, because the minute any manufacturer in the UK wants to sell into the European market, it has to just adopt those rules. I'd slightly disagree with you there, actually, because on the whole proximity thing, that obviously massively man- matters for manufacturing. This is why we have such integrated manufacturing supply and everything, because we're near Europe, so we make cars with people in other European countries rather than in competition with them. But when it comes to like global trade, something that like cities like Edinburgh or London really excel at, actually, if you're spe- selling specialist insurance services, like proximity is not everything. The point is, though, that our economy is really regionally imbalanced between those bits of the economy, like manufacturing or engineering. In those places, they really need that strong relationship with Europe. And places like the big global cities where it'll be inconvenient not to have a strong relationship with Europe, but it's not make or break. And so if we if we really actually do want to do this thing that Tories and Labour have said that they want to, of rebalancing our economy... We need to recognise that this proximity relationship with Europe plays out quite differently depending on where you are. If you're sat in Sheffield, that's a big different conversation to if you're sat in Islington or Haringey, for example. It will have a massively different impact on your economic chances. And I think the thing that the Tories seem to revert to all the time, despite the Northern Powerhouse and despite all of that, they've reverted to their kind of old habits of basically allowing themselves to be lobbied by the city. I think it's really important that we get our heads around this question about why the places, in many cases, that actually voted for Brexit in larger number, not universally, but in larger number, will actually be the places that could lose most. And Eloise, isn't that part of the work of Best for Britain? Absolutely. We're going around the country right now. We were in Doncaster and Norwich recently talking to people there about what Brexit means for them. And it's really important to look at what the impacts are going to be and to make sure that people actually understand that um, and to ask them how Brexit is impacting their lives, to see if it's affecting the pound in their pocket, to see if it's affecting uh, the amount of workers that are in their local hospitals, all that kind of thing. And interestingly, you know, we are seeing a change in public opinion slowly but surely. And the thing we have to remember is public opinion among young people. There were new polls out just uh, this week, actually, showing an astonishing difference between how young people feel about Brexit. It's It's rising all the time, the people that think we're making a mistake by doing this. And interestingly, in the election earlier this year, we saw a lot of Leave voters that had voted in the referendum stay at home. And the kind of people that were coming out to vote uh, for the first time was up to like 20% in many constituencies, whereas Leave voters, around 10% of them stayed at home. Now, you can't prove anything with that, but what, what it does is give you a signal that people are maybe not feeling quite as passionate as they were just a year and a half ago, and people are starting to have those doubts about um, 
where the country's heading because let's face it the government has not provided a map of where we're going and it's really hard to understand the impact not least because they're lying about whether they've got any assessments and uh, whether they've even done their homework on on whether to to go in this direction and we've really got 15 months ahead of us to look at what the impact's going to be on this country we've got about 10 months until a vote in parliament which is going to be crucial and what everybody needs to remember is, you know, this Brexit won't happen without a vote in Parliament. So RMPs are incredibly important and they've got to see how public opinion feels and do what's best for Britain after those 10 months. There was some uh, research that came out on the Left Foot Forward blog earlier this week, which I think was carried out by uh, BMG, which showed that I think it was 66% of young people actually wanted to have a greater say over what the final Brexit deal would look like. And I do think that that completely ties into this idea that actually there has been a lot of fudging going on and people don't really have a very clear idea still of what the government are even trying to achieve. And I think that was something that came out last week. I think Philip Hammond may have said something to that effect, that there hadn't been a discussion in Cabinet. He said it at Treasury Select Committee. I mean, to me, that's absurd. Which you, you were right. on the Treasury Select Committee. Indeed, board. indeed. I asked him the question. <laughs> and um, the reason why I asked it was because I asked David Davis if he could tell us when Cabinet decided that we would leave the single market and the customs union. And and he didn't. He just fluffed it. He didn't really know. So I asked Philip Hammond in the committee, and he said, "Well, we haven't because it's a logical necessity." His argument is that if you leave the European Union, what that means is that you leave the single market and the customs union. But we know that that's not really the case because there's counterexamples to both those situations. So there's obviously Norway that's in the single market uh, and not in the customs union, and also not in the European Union. I would have thought it was really obvious that the Cabinet would have received a paper, would have asked questions, would have discussed the substance of the position and to be told that effectively, you know, it was taken as read that this is what it would mean. I was quite shocked This vote it. that um, Parliament are apparently now going to have on the final Brexit deal, which Eloise mentioned a couple of minutes ago, is there a sense that that will in any way be properly meaningful? Obviously, there'll be a chance there for... MPs to actually ask these questions that perhaps the cabinet are not asking at the moment. But is there a sense that it will that you will have a proper say over what the final deal will be in that in that vote? Well, the answer to that is watch this space because we're going to debate this very question before Christmas over the next two weeks in the Brexit bill discussions, and that's exactly what we need. And what we need is for all the options to be on the table. I think Labour's had a really clear position actually since not last conference, but the conference before the conference straight after Brexit. You know, it says that basically all options should be on the table. Keir Starmer's repeated that recently. You know, that's what we've got to try and achieve, that we give people the fullest possible set of decisions. Because I I think this is a really difficult time for the public, for the kind of British body politic, where we don't really know where we're going. And so closing things down and saying, you know, as as unfortunately Theresa May has said, just out of hand dismissing the idea that we would stay in the single market and the customs union and being so clear that the rest of our country's future is determined by one vote on one day when we've had a general election since where the response was quite different. Absolutely. I mean, if the general election did one thing, it took away Theresa May's mandate. We got some private polling done at the end of April. It showed a 188-seat majority at that point for Theresa May. Um, We decided to embark on a tactical (laughs) vote campaign. Everyone said we were bonkers because there's no way it could have made a dent in the majority. And, of course, many things did 
make a dent in that majority, but some analysis that I'm presenting later actually in, in Parliament shows that tactical voting actually got a lot of MPs over the line, especially in marginal seats. So there was, uh, for a lot of Labour MPs, there was a Corbyn surge, but then there was something else going on, which in those, uh, funnily enough, in a lot of northern seats actually took them over the line. And that was uh, sometimes anti-Tory vote, but often Remainers trying to find a way to fight Brexit. And so the politics of our country are really complicated at the moment, and there is nowhere for a lot of people to go. And I think that we've just got to remember... A couple of things. If public opinion continues to change in a different direction and that people continually say, hang on a minute, I'm not sure about this, I think this is a mistake, and the numbers start to get bigger and we see this huge chasm between people under 45 and, and older people in this country having different points of view about it, if that continues, then you know we need to give our MPs a mandate to do the right thing when the deal, the emerging deal comes to the vote next autumn. And isn't it an important part of that that some people are clearly changing their mind about what they think about our future, but other people are just finding that what they were promised is so unattainable now for our country? I mean, that's what my conclusion from Friday was, that essentially... That the Brexiters don't really have the answers. There, there isn't an opp opportunity to be in the neighbourhood, but just deciding things all by ourselves. And that if we don't want there to be a crisis either between uh, Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom or between Ireland and Northern Ireland, we're going to have to find a way to stay in the single market and the customs union. And we either do that as total passive recipients to it, or we do it as active members of the EEA, which is not part of political union of the EU, but is full membership of the single market. And the bit yesterday morning, Vince Cable was on the Today programme and later today, uh, their amendment is being put on the single market. The thing that I think he got wrong and Heidi Alexander, who's, of course, Alison's counterpart running the Labour campaign for the single market, makes really well is he was suggesting that you can be in the single market, um, but you're just a kind of passive recipient to it. The bit that Heidi's been making well is that if you have a big player like Britain in the EA, you change the dynamic. So it isn't just your passive recipients to all the rules because you've got big stakeholders kind of in the associated club and that that might change the dynamic. And it isn't at the moment that Norway is just passive recipients to the rules. They do get listened to. They just don't get a final say. Yeah. Also, can I just say on this uh, rule taker, rule maker business, you know, we are a big economy and we have all kinds of international lobbying to do. You know, the rules on tax, for example, like we resolve many of them through the OECD. Right? And we're not like thinking about leaving the OECD because we can't just declare what our tax and accounting rules should be. So the idea that, you know, we can't create an agreement that after the Brexit vote and everything keeps us close to our European trading uh, partners and make sure that we have the right forum to be heard on how the market is arranged, I think basically totally underplays Britain and our ability to, to get a deal that works for us. I think that might be right, but the, the truth of it is, if you're in the EEA and you've taken single market rules, you're still not at the table when they're being decided. And that is just part of the treaty. So there is a reality there which the UK needs to kind of you know deal with at some stage that either we're in making the rules or we engage in the single market and that's great but we won't be able to actually we'd have to we'd be a, a powerful lobbyist but we're not actually we don't have actual actual vote but that's the difference between thinking about this as a trade deal and being part of the eu political union and that's where clearly 
the benefit of being in the European Union is that we have a political voice and that we're part of that, you know, wider social discussion about what the rules should be. And, you know, I, I'm not afraid to say that I still think it'd be a better situation to be in the European Union. But in the end, I won't let that, you know, mm. better situation be the enemy of preventing a really hard Brexit, if that's where we get to. But this is a, this is a moving thing all the time. I think one of the reasons I feel really passionately about this is I spent quite a lot of my career trying to influence EU legislation and the hardest nut to crack were always the Brits because they're the most or were the most influential of all the countries. And so I did quite a lot of work on financial services regulation, the accounting directive and it was always the Brits, always the Brits that were the toughest nut to crack. And so you got this situation in which, at the moment, the Euros would absolutely like smack me for saying this, but a lot of the legislation is very heavily UK-influenced and quite British in its like tone. Others may disagree. The minute that we're out, <laughs> I think the kind of legislation that we're going to be kind of compelled to deal with if we are in the EEA or we're taking those rules, it's going to look and feel and read very, very differently. And so I'm astonished that being the sort of biggest you know, kid on the block, if you like, in the EU is the position that we're willing to give up. It just it doesn't make any rational sense. And I think that will play out in terms of the legislation in future. I think you're right. But I think that's also why Alison's right, in which not of those countries want us to play that role in Europe and almost use us as a restraining factor in some ways um, with their own constituencies. And so I think they will welcome a different relationship with the EA if we can have this best of both worlds. I've got a kind of two questions in one here. So Alison, you're co-chair of the... Labour campaign for the single market. And I, I want to get an idea from you how you feel the events of last week have affected the likelihood of Britain staying in the single market permanently. But connected to that, Eloise, and you wrote a great piece for Progress magazine a few months ago um, about outlining how essentially a no-deal Brexit can be stopped. And I think a lot of the discussion over the past few days has essentially seen us take a step away from a no-deal Brexit after months of Tories talking up the likelihood of it. But what you were saying about um, how much progress has been made or perhaps not, um, just kind of leave in there the idea that perhaps the spectre of a no-deal Brexit is still kind of very real and perhaps it's a bit naive to dismiss it uh, so soon. So, Alison, can I come to you first on that? Well, I think what happened was we saw the reality of the problems that are created with our border with Ireland if we have a hard Brexit... I think we saw the reality of that laid out clearly before us. And I think that was always going to be the case. And it's going to be the case when we talk about the permanent, you know, state of being after the transition, when we talk about the trade talks. So my question to basically the hard Brexiteers and people who want us to move away from the European model of doing business would be, you know, if you want that divergence, how are you going to square that with really having no practical checks at the Irish border that would create a hard border that gives us a huge amount of problems on the island of Ireland. And I don't think they've got a particularly convincing answer for it. I think staying in the single market and staying in the customs union, I think, resolves that. And I think we've, we've heard from this discussion, you know, I still think that is not as good as being in the European Union. But in terms of right now, I think the argument that we need to make is about the question before us. Do we want to be keeping our terms of trade as they are now, 
broadly European model, or are we putting our faith in people who want to canter off in a different direction that I think would rip up people's rights and decent incomes? You know, I've never been quite good enough, but that you know, could seem a lot better than the alternative. No deal remains a kind of spectre on, you know, it's hanging around until we resolve all the issues that have been batted down the road. As Ali said, you know, the the Irish stuff hasn't even begun to be dealt with at all, really. It's just been batted forward. And the minute that Theresa May was claiming victory on Friday, Arlene Foster put out a statement kind of dampening it a bit and saying, well, hang on a minute, we've got to see where this ends up before we embrace it fully. It's such a delicate balance and it could all fall in at any moment. So I don't discount at all that no deal is is a real possibility, unfortunately. And that's why that parliamentary vote is so very, very important. And another thing I'd say is that, you know, these two things need to happen to like sign off Brexit, if you like, a vote in this parliament here in the UK and a vote in the European Parliament. And I just noticed on a Politico thread the other day uh, something that the the European Parliament was saying about, well, if citizens' rights aren't properly dealt with, we will not sanction the agreement. And they're being very kind of strident about what their terms and conditions are for Brexit. And they're really using their political leverage. And so there are these two decision points, both in the UK Parliament and in the European Parliament. And I would say we want our British MPs to stand up and fight for all the rights, all the terms and conditions that the different parties have put forward. Even David Davis himself wants the exact same benefits. So we'll just want to see him vote by his own standards, won't we? And then we'll all be fine. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to see that the EU of 27 nations, a, a multi-nation parliament with, what, 600 members representing all kinds of constituencies, is more unified in what they want than the you know, single party cabinet of the, you know, the Tory government, let alone, you know, the Tories in Parliament or Parliament overall. And if they're not making these decisions at that cabinet level, which, which isn't the only place, I mean, Parliament has to assert itself in that sense. This, this is entirely the problem. This is how we've got where we are. Because basically, Theresa May is trying to square the circle between the hard Brexiteers in her own cabinet and the sort of more sensible people in the Tory party who see that unless we've got something like single market membership, something like it at least, that we're we're pretty screwed economically. So that's why she's in such a weak position, because as you say, Richard, like they're all unified, we're all really divided. The irony is, though, if you look at our parliament and you do the numbers, there is very much a majority. You know, if you take the Labour kind of like tacit support for, you know, single market customs union that even though you know the precise detail of the policy is not quite where i would like it to be like like let's not be fussy here right (laughs) the broad direction we've gone in is really good and really strong um if you take that plus the nats plus you know that part of the tory party that is pretty much common sense economics um there's a pretty good majority for that so actually theresa may didn't need to have the general election all she needed to do was face down the hard right I feel like I feel like this uh, discussion could probably go on for roughly the next 15 <laughs> months. But um, I think we may have to leave it there. If you want to take part in this debate at home, do email us at office at progressonline.org.uk, tweet us at progressonline, or leave us a comment in a review on iTunes. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and rate. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question. 
which is then answered on Friday's Extra Show. I've got a brilliant topical question this week. Have you? I'm th- so excited. This week. They've been a bit lame, actually, because I had to make them up on the fly. <laughs> this, this one, once again, is uh, courtesy of Joe Oliver. Who put, no! He, he pulled it out of the bag this morning. Um, so this week, a new Star Wars film is out. I don't know if you know. Are you a big Star Wars fan? Either of you? I am. I'm a big Star Wars you fan. You are. Yeah. So I, I went to visit Luke Skywalker's house. No way. On my summer holidays. Did um, you? in County Kerry, the Skelligs, which are about wow. seven miles off the coast. And you can go up. It's an old monastery from wow. uh, from the 600s. It's brilliant. But any Star Wars I'd fans will know from the, the end of the last film. That's not really connected. We to should it. have done it. You should have done like a progress blog on that. We'd have got all the clicks. <laughs> There's a good Instagram post. I'll stick it at the bottom of the links today. But my question today is what links Nye Bevan's resignation as health secretary in 1951 and the Star Wars film Return of the Jedi. So if you love Star Wars and politics, send your answers to at Hope on Twitter or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a Progress mug when the answer is announced on Friday. We're going to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Eloise Todd joining us today. Uh, me and Richard will be back on Friday to respond to your comments and dish out some prizes. So do get in touch and don't f- forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And apologies if there was any bells or phones going off in the background of the recording of today's show. been listening to the progressive britain podcast with me alison mcgovern the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast mm-hmm.